3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. We are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. Good morning, Spike. Good morning, Inez. Good morning. Morning, guys. How are you going? Oh, it's a it's a bit of a time, but I think yeah. um, something that I've been trying to reflect on is how um, how we turn uh, grief and pain into principled action, and I think um, taking taking moments to to step away uh, to recharge your batteries to come back to the fight stronger has never been more important than it is now absolutely and i think what's also been really nice is turning towards your friends where you can have a space of like hope and grief and laughter i think anytime i've been able to sit with my friends and have a little laugh right now has made me feel like i can come back to the fight stronger as you said Yeah. yeah absolutely um so maybe we'll jump into what we've got on for the show today so First up, we are going to be joined by Sue Ann Hunter, who's a proud Wurundjeri and Nurai Ilamwurung woman and Deputy Chair and Commissioner of the Yuruk Justice Commission. And Sue Ann is going to speak with us about the recent commencement of the Commission's inquiry into land, sky and waters. So this phase in the process of truth-telling aims to explore the issue of land injustice in Victoria with the Commission's findings to inform law, policy and education reform, as well as the drafting of future treaties between First Peoples and the Victorian government. Oh, sorry. Uh, Today we'll also uh, play the second instalment of a three-part interview with climate activist James from Block 8 Australia. Block 8 Australia is an organising network established in response to the destruction of ecosystems that support all human and non-human life, and the network helps to build a political movement that can physically resist Australia's planet-destroying operations with disruptive and targeted action that shuts down the everyday functioning of this machine. Today, I asked James how important direct action is to achieving an environmentally and socially just world, what the main obstacles to achieving this are, and we also discussed the general public's apparent suspicion of scientific data, the public inf- information battle, and how and has corporate Australia succeeded in convincing the community that individual consumption is responsible for environmental degradation. Amazing. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. And then we'll speak with Arj from Melbourne Activist Legal Support, who joins us to talk about the recent points of concern legal observers and attendees witnessed at the Free Palestine Rally on the 15th of October 2023. They joined us to discuss heightened police surveillance and how to keep ourselves safe at upcoming events. And actually, just plugging a couple of those upcoming events, there is a rally today uh, against RMIT University's partnership with Elbit Systems, and that's going to commence at 11.30 a.m. on the corner of Swanston and Latrobe Streets. And then on Friday, there is... Oh, actually, no. That is next Friday. So this Saturday as well, um, on sorry, Sunday, Sunday, the 22nd of October at 12 p.m. outside the State Library. Sunday, the 22nd of October, there's going to be another uh, free Gaza rally. And then next Friday, um, 
the 27th of October, there is going to be a vigil in solidarity uh, with the people of Palestine and um, with Palestinian uh, people that are living in Australia who uh, have lost family members um, in the in the horrific occupation and violence that's been occurring um, in in Gaza. Um, and so that is at 7 p.m. next uh, Friday, the 27th. Um, but we'll keep updating you about that and we'll have a reminder about it in um, next week's show. And now, um, finally, for this week, we are joined by anti-poverty advocate Robert to discuss his personal experiences and analysis of social security ineligibility and poverty in Australia as part of a discussion focused on Anti-Poverty Week, which is running from the 15th to the 27th of October. Robert is disabled and works a casual job that is not sufficient to cover his basic expenses, but is currently ineligible for social security income because of his partner's income. So, um, this uh, various parts of this story may be resonant with uh, resonant with many of our listeners, and I'm really looking forward to hear his analysis of these experiences. Uh, he's going to be sharing more of his story and analysis in an upcoming piece for the Power to Persuade blog special Anti-Poverty Week series moderated by Anti-Poverty Center. So we might uh, step back with a CSA and we'll come back to you with the news headlines. Have fun on Melbourne Cup Day, but without the cruelty by saying nup to the cup. Join Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses and Ten Fingers on Tuesday 7th of November for fashions on the field at the Flemington Bowls Club from 11am. Live music, DJs, delicious food, lawn bowls, outlandish dress-ups and human races. Let's celebrate animals, not exploit them. Visit nuptothecup.org for tickets. Help us make the first Tuesday of November a party for the animals. Nup to the Cup is a 3CR supporter. These are the news headlines for Thursday the 19th of October. Palestinian people in Gaza are beginning to dehydrate to death as clean water runs out with Israeli airstrikes continuing to hit civilian locations amid a total blockade on fuel, electricity, medicine, fuel and other basic supplies. Thousands of Palestinians are using hospitals as refuges, hoping to spread uh, spared bombardment, and this week at least 500 of those people were killed in a reported Israel airstrike on the crowded El Ahli Al Arabi hospital in Gaza City marking one of the biggest single losses of life due to Israel's invasion. Australia, can jo- Australia joins countries around the world denouncing the blast, but with statements carefully worded to avoid saying who's to blame. Health authorities in Gaza say at least 3,000 people have been killed in Israel's bombardment since 7th of October, including at least 940 children. The UN Human Rights Office says Israel's ongoing siege of Gaza and the evacuation order, which Israel announced over the weekend, amount to the international crime of the foreseeable transfer of civilians. Thousands of protesters gathered in so-called Melbourne, Sydney and Adelaide for pro-Palestine rallies over the weekend, despite some being denied official approval by police in some cases. Also in headlines, the inquest into the death of Silesa Tafaifa, who died in prison in 2021 with a spit hood over her head, resumed in Brisbane this week. 
2017 Royal Commission described the use of spit hoods and restraint chairs as inhumane and recommended against their use. But newly released figures show spit hoods were used 82 times across Queensland prisons last year, a figure the Ban Spit Hood Coalition said is shocking but does not reveal the full story. Adding to the trauma and already high level of risk for incarcerated people, the coalition says spit hoods are often used in a repeated way alongside other physical restraints. In other news, uh, proposals to conduct seismic blasting in coastal waters along the Great Ocean Road coastline and beyond across Gunditjmara sacred lands and sea country is drawing grave concerns from First Nations groups, marine, science, marine scientists and local people. Seismic blasting used for extractive industry exploration blows powerful sound waves that have been shown to negatively and harshly impact marine ecosystems. In response to the proposals, Gunditjmara-led Southern Ocean Protection Embassy Collective and local advocates have called a rally against seismic blasting this Sunday. They said they are fighting against plans for the largest blasting survey area in the world and the consultations from the seismic blasting companies are so far not genuine and should not be seen as consent. In other news this week, following the no outcome of the referendum over the weekend, the Black Sovereign Movement have said the result is a win for sovereign rights of First Peoples to self-determine their own destiny. They continue to call on the government to pursue a rights-based approach to implement in full the recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and the Bringing Them Home Report and to progress treaty. Gunai Gunichmara and Jaburong woman and independent senator representing the Black Sovereign Movement, Senator Lydia Thorpe, said peace treaties must be front and center in the federal government's next steps. And finally, in the headlines, with a warning that the headline contains mention of a First Nations person who has died, and you can always call 13YAN if you um, need. The ongoing inquest into the killing of Kumunjai Walker has been postponed again this week after Zachary Rolfe, who fatally shot Mr. Walker in 2019, asked the coroner to rescue herself from the case, rescues themselves from the case. Rolfe has been accused of attempting to distract from and delay the inquest by filing the recusal application earlier this month. Warrelpiri woman Samara Fernandez-Brown, Mr. Walker's cousin, said they delayed the tactics by Rolfe's undue months of planning by Mr. Walker's family to attend the inquest and that they build up the strength to be present only to have to start over again. She said, quote, Rolf killed Kumunjai. That is an undisputed fact, and thus he has to answer for his actions. We have tried to be patient, we have tried to be understanding of the process, but we are frustrated and we are angry, end quote. Now again, you can call 13YAN if you need, or Lifeline on 131114. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 19th of October. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. 
We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Once again, encourage people to get along to that rally this Sunday and remind folks as well that there is a protest that is going to be held. There's, it's actually uh, been held for about 26 weeks now, um, 26 weeks plus by um, a fantastic staunch gentleman on the corner of RMIT's, uh, sorry, on the corner of Swanston and Latrobe Streets, uh, protesting the partnership between RMIT University and Elbit Systems, an Israeli um, weapons manufacturing company that RMIT has an autonomous vehicle um, technology development partnership with. So that protest is happening today uh, from 11.30 a.m. on the corner of Latrobe and Swanston Streets. And now we are joined by Sue Ann Hunter, who is a proud Wurundjeri and Nurai Ilam Wurrung woman and deputy chair and commissioner of the Uruk Justice Commission to discuss the recent commencement of the commission's inquiry into land, sky and waters. This phase in the process of truth-telling aims to explore the issue of land justice in Victoria, with the Commission's findings to inform law, policy and education reform, as well as the drafting of future treaties between First Peoples and the Victorian Government. Now, you can find out more about the work of the Commission, including about making submissions to the present inquiry, by heading to yourrookjusticecommission.org.au. That is Y-O-O-R-O-O-K justicecommission.org.au but uh, we will have all of that information in our show notes and I'm sure that Commissioner Hunter will have much more to share about what submissions entail. So good morning Commissioner Hunter, thank you very much for joining us. Good morning, thanks for having me. Of course and uh, before we start off I just want to say that um, in the in the wake of the weekend's result um, we're really um, we're really glad to to have you on and thank you very much for making the time because I can imagine it's been difficult. Yeah, it has been a difficult time for, for you know, all first peoples um, across the country. But I guess, you know, being the first truth-telling body in Australia, now's a really good time to, to you know, really... Uh, that sort of education piece of people understanding what has happened, particularly in the state of Victoria, is where we're working. Mm. Um, and once I think people understand, there will um, things might change, or we hope things will change. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, this next phase of truth-telling um, is going to be building on the first inquiry and exploring the impacts of colonization on First Peoples' relationships to country. So I was hoping that we could maybe begin by hearing about how country is framed in this inquiry and and exactly how it builds on that first inquiry into Victoria's child protection and criminal justice systems as part of Uruk's broader mission. So um, people may not know about Uruk, but it is the first uh, truth-telling inquiry in Australia, uh, Truth and Justice Commission. We're a royal commission. Um, we chose to look at child protection and criminal justice, and that was from doing elders' roundtables of harms that were happening currently. Uh, and so the next is the next issue that we are going to look at is land injustice. We need to remember that um, First Peoples have a different relationship with the land. It's quite complex uh, and interconnected. 
And so, um, you know, our land, our knowledge, our culture, everything comes um, from the land, sky uh, and water. And so we'll be looking into that next and then and also commencing on education, health um, and housing. So mm. our letters patent tells to look from uh, 1788 to the current and we're looking at uh, examining past and ongoing injustices caused um, by colonisation. So the impact it's had on First Peoples in this state um, I guess their ability to exercise their rights, their relationships, their obligations, uh, the right for self-determination um, in relation to, to land injustice. And we also are going to look at how despite despite the injustices that have happened, our people have maintained their connections, knowledge and practices um, to, to this current day. So uh, how they've revived them and reawakened them. Um, so we are currently calling for some, some, for submissions from individuals and organisations um, at, at currently mm. at the moment. Yeah, and and I think um, you know the 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 report that came out of the first inquiry really. Um, presents an incredible kind of balance between honouring people's stories and recognising as well the harms that have occurred while also uh, providing a pathway forward for mm. how these can be rectified uh, in a self-determined way. So I know that yeah. this inquiry into into country has six priority themes and a range of key issues that relate to the systemic injustices that First Peoples have been subjected to with regard to country in the state of Victoria. So can you tell us a bit about the broader framework for the inquiry and some of those key areas that you're going to be investigating? Yeah, so again, as I said before, we've got a different relationship with the land um, and it's all interconnected. So there's lots in uh, land injustice, in the skies, the the land and the waters that we um, that we need to look at. So we're going to look at, uh, firstly, the centrality of country to First Peoples' identity, mm. culture, language, physical and spiritual well-being, and the economic opportunities and disconnection and devastation that happened during the forced removal of country. Um, how First Peoples were dis- dispossessed of their land, including through state-sanctioned policies, laws, massacres and other violences. So we will be looking at the violence, um, the past and present benefits obtained from the colonising states, from other entities, landholders and settlers through dispossession of First Peoples of their country. But let's be clear, we're not asking for your backyard. I just thought I'd throw that one in there. Uh, The way First Peoples have maintained their culture and connection to the country despite attempts to suppress our culture. And then the ways to address violations of the rights of self-determination and the human and cultural rights provided to address present and past ongoing injustice uh, in relation to First Peoples' dispossession of the, their country, um, now collectively known as the State of Victoria. Mm. So we'll be collecting those uh, evidences through roundtables, um, discussions with traditional owners, organisations, individuals. So we'll have formal and informal hearings. We'll visit significant sites. We'll issue notices to produce to the government um, and, you know, we want everybody to tell uh, their stories. We can't write the wrongs of the past without understanding it, without analysing it, and without rectifying it to come to healing for this state. Um, and that is why we don't want this to be something that happens to somebody else. We want everybody, even if you don't have anything to say, please go and look at our website mm. and see the work we're doing and what we've done, because I think there's some 
You know, even the stories people tell are quite educational for people to understand what has happened in this state. Yeah, and I mean... Thinking about the kind of relationship between that first um, phase of inquiry and this mm. phase looking into land, sky and waters, um, you know, listeners uh, may not, you know, some listeners may not um, be as across this, but it, yeah. it, do, it does seem to me that, you know, those those considerations are, are inextricable. And that's what I see in, in your mm. work is to say, you know, there have been these very specific harms perpetrated against uh, Aboriginal people in this state, but yeah. also that that is contingent on a broader process of, of dispossession of land theft and of uh, attempts to disconnect First Peoples from their country. And it's also constantly, as you said, you know, being resisted and challenged by the agency of First Peoples in continuing to maintain those relationships in some way or another. Um, so... I understand that uh, one of the, the, the main mandates of Yuruk is uh, to look at how this process kind of goes forward towards uh, treaty proceedings. And how do you anticipate mm-hmm. that this inquiry is going to inform treaty proceedings, given the centrality of land justice in reconfiguring um, the colonial relationship in this state? Yeah, I think... Um, uh, so if you have a look at our, our last report, we... Um, divided our recommendations into two parts. So one that was a longer term, uh, which would go to treaty negotiations. And then there was the harms or or things that the government can do now to rectify some of the wrongs. Mm. Um, And so we'll be pretty much doing a very similar thing in that way. This uh, Royal Commission is quite different in the, the fact that our recommendations don't just go to the governor, they go to the First People's Assembly. So we also have another body that can help push forward our recommendations. Um, And so uh, the work that we currently do or currently are going to in the future do will all end up with um, First People's Assembly, uh, which can be part of negotiating a treaty process. I think understanding the history um, from the stories and getting them on the public record and having this piece of work, sort of like, I'm not going to like it's a research, which sounds really quite clinical, but that the First People's Assembly have got to push forward with things that we need to happen for First Peoples to have full self-determination within the state. Mm. And, I mean... I know that, as you mentioned, that the the framing of research sounds um, pretty pretty sterile when when talking mm. about this, and I and um, I guess it it seems like this is really um, maybe this is what self determined research looks like, where there's this entire scaffold of uh, of care, of cultural protocol, of meeting people where they're at, of mm. um, honoring people's stories and how they contribute to this broader process, um, you know, in a way that I guess standard academic research or institutional research um, is is not really prepared or equipped to do, but is the specific yeah. role of the commission. Um, yeah. So would you like to share any thoughts, um, you know, coming back to kind of the wake of the weekend's result in terms of how Victorians and state civil society organisations can really best engage with the work of Yuruk in preparation for treaty negotiations, but also in terms of uh, the way that uh, in, in, the, in the shorter term, there can be pushes for, for changes around policy and institutional um, practice? Yeah. And just first, let me acknowledge all First Peoples across the state and, and Australia for their hard work, their strengths, and and um, getting out there every single day, and 
is seeking justice for our people. So I really need to acknowledge that because mm. I don't want that to be lost within um, what has happened over the weekend. Because mm. um, it's been it's been particularly particularly challenging, um, particularly with the racism and, and derogatory comments directed towards those people. Mm. Um, you know, and harmful disinformation. It's just been it's actually quite disappointing. So I don't want to lose the strength of our people, the work they're currently doing, um, and, the, and they get up every day and redo it. Mm. So, um, understandably, while the nation has, has been focused on, on the voice, um, we've been continuing with work and investigating systemic injustices in the state. Um, and I think that work and that conversation is more important now than ever before. Um, let's hope that by listening and speaking to each other with, with each other, um, you know, with respect and with hope that, that we all have a role to play in this in the healing part of this state. Um, and so uh, I guess the part that everybody can be a part of in the part of healing for this state is inviting all Victorians to take part in this process by making submissions about um, past or ongoing systemic injustices faced by those people. It doesn't have to particularly be in land justice, even though we're focusing on that right now. Um, it can include documentation or information about history or a particular piece of land, um, artefacts or other evidence. We've had uh, um, non-Aboriginal people come forward already with artefacts and things like that, saying we don't know if we've had this on our country or we've found this or it's handed down, mm. um, that are given back to First Peoples. Um, we're seeking submissions from civil society and organisations with experience in these areas. Um, we don't want this to be something that happens to someone else and uh, it was quite a historic moment. And making a submission and um, adding to the public record could make all the difference. So we can't investigate until people uh, set us on the journey with their submissions. We can start looking at writing the wrongs, but we need that evidence. Um, and those submissions are that evidence. And coming forward helps us build our case for really, really strong recommendations um, for the final report. Mm. And I think I, I really take your point about the fact that, you know, this is something that we're all implicated in and that non-Indigenous people have a responsibility to engage in the way that, um, you know, in the way that they're able to 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 make useful submissions to mm. uh, the Commission, uh, speaking from where they're at about how uh, these injustices have uh occurred and been perpetuated and also to, uh, you know, as part of lending their voice to these submissions um, in whatever way uh, is most useful, that is also a part of, of challenging how the colonial status quo relationship yeah. has, has been configured and trying to come to a new way of relating to each other. Yeah, that's, that's exactly correct. So in saying that, I'm going to repeat that um, website that you said earlier. So www.yourookjusticecommission.org.au so it's Y-O-O-R-O-K Justice Commission and um, you can get online and it'll show you either if you want to make a submission um, online, happy to do that. You can also make an inquiry and we have truth receivers available to support first peoples. We have wellbeing support as well and we have free and independent legal advice uh, as well. We've got to remember that we are the first truth-telling body in um, Australia. Victoria is leading the way in um, truth and treaty. And I really urge just, you know, um, 
don't miss out the chance to tell your story and help build the evidence base um, for for the state and for your book. And I can only urge you to get on the website, look at our other reports um, and some of the information, and particularly the hearings are all streamed live on and recorded, so they're on there. But understand that your, your ultimate goal to understanding is really listening to the voices of our people. Most submissions are online as well, and I urge people to get online and, and have, a, have a look and a read or a listen on some of our videos. Um, because we need people to make the connection between the past and the present and understand how and why we need this Royal Commission into systemic injustices of first peoples in this state. Um, so, you know, I can only urge you enough to, to any questions, please, you know, email them in, on the website and, and we'll be able to assist in any way we can. Yeah, and again, want to... Uh reiterate and, and call back to, to what you said before about the just immense amount of work that has gone into this uh, by First Peoples in this mm. state and um, also more broadly the, you know, the immense amount of work that goes into um, being in the world as a, as a colonized person um, after, you know, some of the racist vitriol that has come out of the weekend and mm. um, encouraging you know, listeners who are not Indigenous to try and show up in the in the ways that you can um, make this um, your moment to to step out and shoulder some of that load as well um, for Aboriginal yeah. and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Now, Commissioner Hunter, is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrapped up? Uh, no, other than um, please, you know, I can only urge you to go and have a look at our website, um, talk about it with your friends, your family. Um, get the word out there that this is happening and that um, you might know of uh, somebody or a family member that might be able to make a submission and supporting them in doing that. Um, but, you know, we want people, we want all Victorians on this journey with us. We can't do it without you. Um, and it might, people say, well, it's just another Royal Commission. Well, it's the first truth-telling commission in Australia and I'm very proud of Victoria to be able to, to do this and put this forward and... and um, be able to get the voices of first peoples uh, in the public record. So thank you so much for having me on this morning. No, of course, and, and thank you again for making the time. Thanks much. And that was Commissioner Sue Ann Hunter, a proud Wurundjeri and Nurai Ilam Wurrung woman and Deputy Chair and Commissioner of the Europe Justice Commission, uh, who joined us to discuss the recent commencement of the Commission's inquiry into land, sky and waters. And this phase, uh, phase in the process of truth-telling aims to explore the issue of land and justice in Victoria with the Commission's findings to inform law, policy and education reform, as well as the drafting of future treaties between First Peoples and the Victorian government. And you can find out more more about the work of the Commission, including about making submissions to the present inquiry by heading to yourrookjusticecommission.org.au, and we will have all of that information in our show notes. Now, I reckon we might just jump into the next segment that we've got on. So um, I know, Spike, uh, we're going to be continuing that conversation with James from Blockade Australia. Do you want to um, let us know what we're going to be hearing about? Yeah, yeah. So, like, I just wanted to preface it by saying um, over the last three and four months, we've had some really great conversations with unionists, um, peer workers, housing, anti-fascist, environmental and political activists and people, generally people um, that are working to advocate for the 
for the collective good and for social change. And it was really interesting to continue that um, last week with James because I, I guess I didn't know what to expect. Because a, a part of me, um, um, I, I still I thought that blockade still did like part of their thing was like public education and you know like um, I guess educating the public about the you know environmental destruction. But what what and what he's made clear is like from our conversation last week is that blockades about providing a platform to upskill individuals. Um, it's like a network of activists and for them it's about putting them, themselves physically between the extraction process and, you know, them being able to do the dirty work that they do, I guess. Um, he also told us that he was attracted to that because he was he did a sustainability course and there was no sustainability in, the, in his degree and he felt like he was having to make um, excuses for for polluters and the fossil fuel industry. Um, uh, he also, he also felt, also, he also felt that the, 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 that the commitment to social environmental justice is central to blockades mission. And that's, and that's, um, connected to racial justice, sexual justice, housing, you know, like all these things are connected. Um, and so when, and when I asked him about, um, what tactics he thought were most effective. So this is where I learned about the education bit to educate the public and, wh and why they were most effective. He, he made it clear that that's secondary for those guys and they're more about actually physically getting in the way of, you know, yeah, ports, mines and bridges, just letting people know that actually it's like a call to armed or call to action actually. And, and the way he described it is it's like making the system defend itself. And so today you're going to hear the second part of this conversation. I would argue that Blockade Australia is synonymous with direct action and that's what most people associate with Blockade uh, in the public imagination. So how important is direct action to achieving uh, a more environmentally conscious and socially just world? And who's it targeted at? Is it just the general public or yeah, who else is it targeted at? Yeah, I guess like the, the actions themselves are obviously targeted at the kind of this, this, the system's flow of exploitation, um, I guess getting in the way of that, um, targeted at, yeah, the population as well. You know, the call to action is to the people, not to the system, because, you know, it's pretty obvious you can't ask anything from this kind of system that is designed the way it's designed to they're not going to they're not going to simply just change their mind because they've suddenly realized something new like it's it's all over the news like yeah the united nations governor general is saying we're on a highway to hell and stuff and yeah so the call to action is definitely to the people um for the people to take action for the people to kind of yeah r recognize the need um and the ability that we do have um and we can show that ability um, by doing those direct that direct action, so yeah, I guess it's it's targeted at at both both. Um, what was the first part of that question? I think in the public imagination that people associate blockade Australia with direct action, and and I guess it and I think and, and yeah, how important is direct action to blockade's mission to achieving a more socially just just and, and environmentally conscious world? And who's the message targeted at? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's 
fundamental to Blockade Australia's mission because it's a direct expression of how, you know, when you don't agree with something or something like to this extent that's actually going to like kill you, then don't wait for someone else to do it, but take the direct action and like get in the way. And, you know, it's, it's not harmful to any living beings doing that. Um, but what is harmful is, is almost not doing it because, yeah, so. Yeah, it's, um, it's blocking blocking the cogs in the machine. Blocking the cogs in the machine, exactly. And just physically going out and doing that, taking the risks, knowing that the risks of not doing so are, are greater. Um, and, yeah, you know, it's not, it's not just like having forums and meetings every week and trying to convince people of, of the politics that, you know, we hold. It's actually... People, people know Blockade Australia through their actions because we have a praxis and it's, um, it, it's what distinguishes us really from a lot of other groups um, that, you know, you might hear talking about, um, I don't know, you walk, I walk down the street and I, and I hear people talking about um, politics or climate action and stuff like that and I'm, I'm wondering, like, yeah, what? If I, if, if, you know, I, I also sound like that or something, but I guess with those, like, real experiences of having taken action and continuously doing that, then, yeah, that's what needs to be done and is what, is what um, I guess, is unique about um, parts of Blockade Australia. Okay, all right. So what, what do you think are the major challenges or obstacles to achieving, to achieving the social and environmental change that's required? You know, are they ethical, philosophical, social? Yeah, what, what do you think are the major obstacles or challenges? The major obstacle from, like, living in a safer future is probably the military and the kind of ridiculous amounts of money and energy put into yeah war games and stuff because that like ultimately it doesn't matter what we do here if they decide to you know to destroy each other on that scale then probably going to kill the climate anyway but yeah in terms of like being able to um yeah get the kind of climate action and and kind of real change that we need to survive probably a fair few things i guess um yeah the the kind of corruption of the of the media and the and the politicians kind of makes it quite hard for people to yeah get out of their monotonous kind of daily habits kind of push back a lot on climate action um it's kind of hard like people kind of almost a lot of yeah there's just so much misinformation people don't really know why they if they believe in climate change or not as well so um i guess more there is a lot of education out there and it's almost like not worth doing more awareness or educated stuff um, because that's happening so much. So, Do you think maybe, that's changed? Do you think that's a, a recent change in, say, the last five years? Or do you think, I mean, you're always up against um, messages of social change when you have a media that's invested in the status quo. I, I get what <laughs> you're saying. But, like, do you think it's even, people become even more suspicious of scientific data these days? Or is, do you think I'm... Yeah, yeah. Do you think people are? I kind of do. I guess there's this ridiculous amount of junk and AI's ability to create kind of any sort of political angle that, yeah, that they need for the kind of whatever politicians 
kind of come up with and stuff and um, heaps of misinformation and stuff. But, you know, ultimately, like, I guess it's, the best thing is just to look around you often, you know, and, and you realise that chopping down huge forests and um, polluting, like, waterways and stuff and animals dying and things, like, is not going to be good for you or your future children. So it's, it's quite, you know, I don't think people have to, like, think a whole lot to realise that, um, yeah, ongoing exploitation is um, bad for the planet. So you think yeah. the, ba- the battle, like the information battle and the pub, like the public education battle, is is where it's at? Yeah, probably, and and also just the like the kind of people. I think people are just quite comfortable and setting into their like capitalism and individualistic lifestyles, and almost like maybe have just accepted. Um, I don't know. It's almost like too easy these days to just kind of like accept and watch kind of yourself do nothing and I'm not sure like yeah I think it's I think it's just too comfortable for a lot of people and other people are like too far into poverty that they kind of yeah are not able to like take any action and then you get climate disasters and like you know up in like Lismore for example um the people there they you know they obviously like really concerned about climate collapse but but, you know, at the time, they're still they're kind of right in the midst of the housing crisis there as well. And so the more disasters that come and stuff like that, the less people are going to be able to actually, yeah, fight back, really. Do you think people so, get disaster fatigue or catastrophe fatigue? Oh, and trauma, yeah. Yeah, yeah. To the point where they just prefer not to think about it anymore yeah. or something. But I'm not sure what, what the future is going to hold. It's going to be pretty, somehow have to have to work with that as well. Okay. Um, I would argue, like, I would argue that the mining and resource industry or the corporate world in general has been really successful at convincing the general public that it's individual consumption rather than corporate and, you know, multinational action that's responsible for the degradation of the environment. Do you think that that's a true statement? And if it is, how do we counter that? Yeah, 100%. I think that's a a true statement. Um, I think they have huge interests and have done so in the past, you know, like BHP Billiton coming up with the, um, with the phrase, um, oh, something about like, um, just about like, yeah, your individual consumption, the carbon, carbon footprint, I think it was. Um, and like, yeah, they are definitely benefiting off that because, you know, um, you're kind of like spending most of your time and, and you're also feeling like good when you when you make these little changes. But yeah, in reality, it just kind of allows them to continue doing these like incredibly ridiculous um, things that will continue to yeah keep destroying the future. Um, and yeah, like it kind of takes the pressure off Big corporations, it takes the pressure off um, governments, um, it kind of allows the wealthy to kind of keep yeah, doing the carbon polluting activities that they do and it puts stress and huge financial um, pressure on yeah, the everyday individual. I think how we counter that, um, because yeah, obviously it is true to kind of do the best you can for your environment every day, but um, we do live under the kind of a system that you don't get to like just make heaps of like free choices like 
you know, it's it's like nice to say that perhaps I'm like, you know, should be more environmentally focused or um, aware or something, and so I shouldn't drive a car or I shouldn't, um, you know, use a phone or go out of this of a city and go um, live in the bush or something. But like, ultimately, that stuff is actually kind of just isolating yourself from the rest of the problem and um yeah the if no one else is like going to make any change to kind of bring that awareness um and fight back on those fossil fuel companies that have been doing that then it's not really going to benefit me or the globe at all it's like removing myself which is a tiny tiny amount of the um co2 or pollution or whatever that's going into the world so yeah i guess we counted that by 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 doing actions um in a way that you can get your political message out there um you can say those things you can counter that in arguments that you have with people how do you feel like uh, how do you feel about people promoting environmental activism on social media i mean it's a useful way to reach out to the people who express interest that they like what you're doing it's probably the most easy platform to be able to kind of yeah, share events and the messaging. Um, you can do live streams and stuff. Um, yeah, I think social media is good for that. Um, yeah, ultimately, like, you know, the way that it's structured doesn't really allow you to reach people who, yeah, haven't or are not interested in you. So I guess your reach is quite small, I think. Um, and, yeah, also... I think during the mobilization in June this year, Chris Minns um, tried to get Facebook to ban us from doing live streams. Um, or, you know, I think the message was about people live streaming, um, yeah, kind of protest activities that were illegal or something um, and banning them. And, yeah, I guess I'm wondering if there was some sort of manipulation in the algorithm because it didn't seem like the reach that we had... <laughs> kind of went down a bit but yeah I guess like you know it's one it's one output and from there it kind of helps media channels like traditional media channels to kind of yeah take on and think um and and write more about you and once it gets into the into the mainstream kind of news channels then I think there's a bit more success there. I ask that question because I see, I think, I think it's valuable. This is just a personal thing, by the way. I think it can be effective in terms of spreading the message, uh, educating people about what, what, what people can do um, uh, in terms and builds morale. Yeah, I also think one one of the, the the negative side of it because you know especially when talking about countering corporate Australia's message, one way is to use social media. My negative with it is is that I think it, it sort of promotes like a fetishism of of protest. That that's what I think. It's, it turns into a bit of a fashion thing because from speaking to you in in a longer term sort of format, what I also hear is like there's a lot of sacrifice, there's a lot of hard work in in planning, implementing and evaluating actions. And I think that mm-hmm. I think there is even from experience. And I don't know and I don't know when people use social media that that, that people get that message. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Um oh yeah it does, yeah. Yeah. I guess it's just the the kind of I mean, traditional media and like going out and, and kind of doing handing out zines and talking to people on the street and stuff like that is probably more effective in terms of 
um, gauging people's like interest and um, kind of being able to share a lot more. But um, yeah. Um, and so that was the second part of the three-part interview with James uh, from Blockade Australia, where we discussed um, how important direct action is to achieving an environmentally and socially just world, what the main obstacles are to achieving this, and we also discussed the general public's apparent suspicion with scientific data, the public inf information battle, and has corporate Australia succeeded in convincing the community that individual consumption is responsible for environmental degradation. And now, and now we will be joined by AJ from Melbourne Activist Legal Support. And they join us to talk about the recent points of concern legal observers and attendees witnessed at the Free Palestine Rally on uh, this Sunday, the 15th of October. And they join us to discuss heightened police surveillance and how to keep ourselves safe at upcoming events. Welcome, AJ. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No, thank you so much for making the time. Could you tell us a little bit more about what Mal, um, Melbourne Activist Legals does? Yeah, absolutely. So Melbourne Activist Legal Support is an all-volunteer organisation that provides training for protest movements, information and resources on the right to protest in Victoria and fields legal observer teams that monitor and report on the policing of protest events. So we train organisers and activist groups in legal support approaches and strategies um, and we can help coordinate activist legal support with supportive law firms and community legal centres. Um, so at the P Palestinian Solidarity Rally on Sunday, Mel's fielded a team of 10 fully trained legal observers to independently monitor the event. Yeah, um, I have been to many, many protests in our time here in Nam, and, you know, Melbourne Activist Legal Support is always there, always providing care and education. And I think it's wonderful, important work that you do. And given the Palestinian Solidarity Rally um, on the the last Sunday that we saw, we saw an increase in police surveillance, police not abiding to protest law. And I know you've recently also shared a post recently on Instagram um, about all the different points of concern. But could you walk us through, you know, some of what legal observers saw? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, legal observers noted a number of concerns on Sunday. Uh, the first was requests from police to remove base coverings. Uh, police should not be asking protesters to remove face coverings uh, unless they have a good reason. So there are some exceptions, but they can't be asking that as a default position at rallies um, as it infringes on protesters' rights to privacy. And there is a one main exception, which is where the area becomes designated um, as a search area under the Control of Weapons Act. But that wasn't the case this past weekend. So there really wasn't uh, any justification that we know of for asking these face coverings to be removed. Yeah. Um, and, of course, we are still um, in the era of COVID, so people do still mask up, um, people wear scarves. It's just, uh, yeah, not what we want to be seeing as a default question for police. Uh, additionally, some police officers weren't wearing badges. Uh, as part of the police manual, officers should be wearing ID, and protesters are able to approach an officer and ask for the name and badge number where they aren't wearing this ID. Uh, thirdly, we did identify a lack of safety concern for protesters by police. So Mel's witnessed um, a really big lack of traffic control, especially at the major intersections along the march route. 
despite having a large police presence. So we felt that police seemed more concerned with having a show of force at the event, Mm. um, moving more officers up to the front, rather than aiming to keep uh, the protest and protesters safe. Um, Additionally, um, as you kind of mentioned, in terms of the increased surveillance, we did see a high number of evidence-gathering teams. Um, They have become a frequent presence at protests, so most people have seen evidence-gathering teams out and about, but there were more teams on the ground than we usually see. Um, We're used to seeing about one team, and there were three in attendance on Sunday. Um, generally recording the protest from from the front, from the back, um, from high vantage points where they can, which, again, impacts on a protester's right to privacy. Um, And the police were actually seen asking protesters to stop filming them. Um, People can film in public. This is not against the law. And it is important for police accountability and especially kind of the work we're doing out there. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so unbelievably concerning that they are asking people um, to not film them um, when that is completely allowed. Um, And then also with, uh, yeah, not wearing the ID badges. So you can't identify um, the officer. And also on top of that, you can't film them. Um, And it seems like, yeah, it, it, it just seems like a scary place to be in with protests. But maybe that's not the right word. I think I was also quite... um. More interested, not more interested, sorry, uh, in the evidence-gathering teams because I know mm-hmm. that a lot of us have seen them at rallies, but they really come out kind of in mass at the Palestinian rally. Um, yeah. Why do you feel that they, they've come out in mass and also a little bit more about these teams? Like, what are they gathering evidence for? What do they need yeah. it for? Yeah. Yeah. Look, there's still so much that we don't know about the evidence gathering teams. They're quite secretive. Um, There's not a lot of information on on what they do um, and what their their aims kind of are. They do form part of uh, Victoria Police's public order response team. So that's the port team that we see out at a lot of protests um, wearing the kind of full black or dark blue getup. Um, But the evidence gathering team have specific training in filming and monitoring protests. We do know that police have access to face ID technology and have sophisticated surveillance programs designed to detect crime. Police would probably say that they're there to film any potential crime being committed. Um, But in reality, the monitoring of protest is an opportunity for police to keep an eye on protesters that they might deem to be a person of interest. There were so many teams, uh, we believe, because police must have assessed the the risk posed by those attending as being high. Um, Of course, it is a form of criminalising a community before a crime has been committed. Yeah, absolutely. And also with, you know, speaking of the kind of face ID and the digital surveillance, um, I know that we've also had interviews with, you know, Reset Australia and Digital Rights Watch. So I also encourage listeners to maybe go back to some of those interviews um, to get maybe a bit of a bigger picture on like why this is so important right now. And what was also interesting, obviously, in Victoria, um, there's mass evidence gathering teams, police not wearing ID badges, asking people not to film, removing, asking them to remove face coverings. And similarly, in the New South Wales, there's been such a huge crackdown on protest laws, um, which has been happening for a while now. And I guess what does this heightened surveillance and police not abiding by the law mean for protests in Victoria? Yeah. 
So we have seen Victoria Police be a lot more facilitative of these events than in New South Wales, which is good. Mm -hmm. Um, But we have, over the last few years, seen the space for people to protest in Victoria eroding. Um, And we're seeing heightened surveillance as a form of strategic incapacitation to limit protest movements. So this type of surveillance um, and policing feeds into the idea that a protest is dangerous and it deters people from attending, which limits the size and the effectiveness of protest groups. Um, Protest is not illegal. It is a civil and political right for all citizens. Uh, So if we don't protect that right to protest, we do lose a vital tool for social change. Yeah, absolutely. And as you've mentioned, I really want to harp in on that it is a civil and political right and it is a tool for social change and how important that is, particularly given what is happening right now in Gaza as well. And I know that there will be ongoing um, rallies in the upcoming weeks and days. Could you tell us a little bit more about how to keep ourselves safe and then also what our rights are when we do attend the rallies? Yeah. Uh, So firstly, as you mentioned, and very importantly, you do have a right to protest as protected by the Charter of Human Rights. And like I said, the police have been largely facilitative of this. Um, But for added safety, we do recommend attending protests in groups if possible, making sure that you're looking out for one another, um, going with a buddy where you can, even travelling in and out. Um, And be prepared. Just ensure you know what your rights are if you do speak to police. Um, so if you're questioned by police, we always recommend that you stay calm and that you ask for the officer's details. Um, you can ask for their name, their rank, their station. You don't have to answer any questions. If in doubt, you can always say no comments and you do not have to consent to searches. But if you're forced, um, we do advise that you don't resist, but just state clearly that you do not consent um, and ask if you're under arrest. If you're not, you can walk away. Um If you are under arrest, um, which we haven't really seen um, so far, so it's not not a major stressor point, um, you should ask even why you are under arrest. Again, ask for the officer's details. You must give your name and address, but you don't have to answer any other questions. Again, if in doubt, say no comment. Um, You can call a lawyer and a friend or relative as well. You don't have to consent to having your photo taken. And if searched, you have the right to ask for an officer of the same gender to conduct the search. There are some more great resources on your rights around protest on our website as well, melv.au, and on our social media pages. Um, So it's always worth just checking them out beforehand. Most protest organisers are aware of these rights and will work with other groups, including us, including the police, to make protests as safe as possible. So we don't want people to be dissuaded. Um, You know, we're seeing large numbers um, and yet predominantly safe and well-facilitated protests. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. It's such a helpful and accessible breakdown to really understand um, what our rights are, how to keep ourselves safe and yeah, definitely have solidarity within each other. And we will make sure to link Melbourne Activist Legal Support uh, in our show notes as well as the Instagram because uh, there's so much great like snapshot breakdown information there too. Yeah. But thank you so much, AJ, for joining us here today and um, solidarity with you always. Thank you and thank you for your support. No problem at all. Thank you, okay. AJ.
That was AJ from Melbourne Activist Legal Support, who joined us to talk about the recent points of concern legal observers and attendees witnessed at the Free Palestine Rally on the 15th of October. And they spoke to us about heightened police surveillance, evidence gathering teams, and how we can keep ourselves safe at upcoming events. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. It's currently 8.01. Salam be hamegi. This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio. Tune in 4 to 6 p.m. every Sunday on 3CR for a wide selection of modern music from the greater Middle East and beyond. We feature guests both locally and internationally based to help bring new sounds to you. For more information, please follow our Instagram at Salam Radio Show. So tune on in. dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law. 6 p.m. Tuesdays. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we might go to a track. This one is uh, something that will hopefully be uh, a little relaxing, but also uplifting. Uh, It's called Nada by Clarissa Bittar, who is a Palestinian musician.
we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Inez? Yes, so that was Nada by Clarissa Bathar. And I just wanted to say that I know things feel really difficult right now and I know that we have to find solidarity and comfort in each other and it feels really awful to turn away from your phone um, or you feel like you're switching off but you know all of us here at 3CR we're not switching off we are turning away to rest and to come back stronger and in the time where you do have to kind of decompress we there's like palestinian music that you can listen to find comfort in your friends and there's also um something that helped me (laughs) fuel my rage um was like listening to podcasts about palestine um and finding yeah having that comfort that like you're educating yourself you're doing something down relaxing um mm. yeah it's just it's it's really hard right now people have to go to work and that's really difficult there's a collective grief but we're all in it together yeah absolutely and um i would uh, encourage people we, we've had um various folks from the australia palestine advocacy network on here uh like nura mansur uh nasser mashni uh who have joined us and have been just doing incredible incredible work um you know to to raise concerns about uh, the situation in Palestine for many, many years um, and, uh, you know, working with incredible Jewish interlocutors like Jordi Silverstein, um, is, who is somebody that I immensely respect and look up to, um, having some of those conversations which are recorded on on APAN's website. So that is apan.org.au, uh, where there are plenty of resources where you can learn a bit more about the region and um, also learn a bit more about uh, the the error of uh, conflating Palestine solidarity with um, with anti-Semitism. And also on 3CR, there's Palestine Remembered. There is Salam Radio. And I realized I forgot to back announce the song. It is the lovely song we heard was Nada by Clarissa Bittar. And uh, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. 
the Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Kafirs are Palestinian staffs and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafirs.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 8.11 in the morning. And we're going to be joined now by anti-poverty advocate Robert, who's joining us to discuss his personal experiences and analysis of social security, ineligibility and poverty in Australia as part of a discussion focused on anti-poverty week. Now, Anti-Poverty Week is running this week from the 15th to the 27th of October. And... um, It's a time to really uh, basically uh, reflect on the nature of poverty in Australia, what's fueling that, and, uh, you know, follow calls to action uh, to raise the social security rate and uh, to change the conditions uh, in our policy landscape that uh, make poverty a normalized feature of Australian society uh, when we know that so many people are doing it tough. And so Robert is disabled and works a casual job that is not sufficient to cover his basic expenses, uh, but he's currently ineligible for Social Security income because of his partner's income. So last year, he authored the blog Poverty 101, a beginner's course, and um, he's going to be sharing more of his story and his analysis of what needs to change in an upcoming piece for the Power to Persuade blog's special Anti-Poverty Week series moderated by Anti-Poverty Centre. But of course, we'll have all of those links in our show notes for now. We will be speaking with Robert. So good morning. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, uh, before we even jump into the conversation, I want to um, acknowledge how how challenging it is for uh, folks who are living below the poverty line to raise their voices about uh, the conditions that, you know, they're being subjected to because of the way that mainstream media tends to cover these issues and, um, you know, tends to come for anti-poverty um, activists and advocates. So I'm, I'm really grateful to have you on. Um So just to start off with, there's been a lot of mainstream media coverage of the cost of living crisis and housing crisis, but I was wondering if you could start off by talking about what it means to think about these issues as part of a broader poverty crisis in Australia. 
Yes, sure. So, as you've said, there isn't any lack of attention to the cost of living crisis and what it means for ordinary Australians. Uh, Unfortunately for us, on much lower incomes, um, uh, for us who have a disadvantage because of our circumstances, the things that hit ordinary people hard and cause people to suffer hits us harder (laughs) and makes us suffer even more. Mm. But as you mentioned, uh, our voices don't tend to... Don't, don't tend to get um, enough attention in the me- media, or we don't, we're not. We don't tend to be invited on <laughs> to share what it's like for us. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, many of us feel ignored, unfortunately. But, um, but I mean, it's great that a community radio station like this would um, have me on and. I mean, there are some good journalists. I mean, the Guardian Australia is quite good. Um, yeah, so I think it's quite important that uh, people realise what it means for those of us who are experiencing disadvantage. Mm, and, I mean, you know, so- something that I've seen in mainstream media coverage a lot as well is, like, there's a willingness to extract the traumatic parts of people's stories but not... Uh, at the same time recognize that people also have like a very comprehensive analysis of of their experiences and what needs to change based on um, what they've been put through. Um, So you're going to be authoring a piece for the Power to Persuade blog this week as part of Anti-Poverty Center's Moderation of Anti-Poverty Week um, posts on the site. So I know this is going to be focusing on the impacts of the partner income test on people on very low incomes. So can you tell us a bit about how this has impacted you and how people on Social Security have to really navigate about how they disclose information to Services Australia in order to try and get the bare minimum to survive? Sure. So, I mean, as probably listeners are aware, the the rate for job seeker, the unemployment benefit, is very, very low and doesn't go nearly far enough to allow people to cover the cost of living and live with dignity. But Australia has one of the most means-tested welfare systems in the world. Very complicated legislation. So there are all kinds of checks on us. And one of the things that we're required to disclose to Centrelink is whether we're in a relationship, specifically a de facto one, or we're married. And if we are, then the Centrelink wants to know how much our partner is earning, the uh, each fortnight and then uses a calculation called the partner test to uh, reduce our income accordingly, I think. I mean, roughly. I don't have the information in front of me, but if your partner's earning rough, I think, 600 a week for JobSeeker, that's when it kicks in. And then uh, if they're earning 1,200 a week, I think it's 1,200. Gross, this is not after tax, mm-hmm. this is before tax, um, it, the, you get no, yeah, you you lose your income, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's the job seeker. And 
Um, also, there's a presumption that, which is quite ridiculous for anyone who is in a modern relationship, that uh, when you're in a couple, um, you share expenses, and so it's less expensive expensive for you than it would be if you were single, mm-hmm. because you share costs, uh, which is not true <laughs> in many cases. Um, it's particularly bad, I mean, from what I can tell, for the disability pension. They tend, um, you move from a single rate to a couple rate. Uh, roughly, I think it's $200 a week less, which is huge. Yeah. Um, that's before the partner testing. Um, I, I, know, I know these numbers might, might seem sort of meaningless, but mm. the people, this is, this is support that's cut away from them and uh, that can't go towards food or basic expenses. But I think, rough, I think the rate, I think the partner test for disability is Something like they, they assess your combined income, um, your fortnightly income. If it's $360 a week or more, they uh, take away 50 cents for every dollar you're earning or the couple is earning. Um, so I don't know what where it kicks in, but uh, yeah. it cuts off uh, at a uh, for a combined earning of uh, was it 300 3,600, I might be wrong. Um, yeah, so what that, I mean, those are just numbers I'm throwing around, but what that means is uh, something that, that's mentioned in an ABC article where, say, a disabled woman chose not to get married to her partner because she would lose her pension. Mm. Uh, it would take away her financial independence. It would make life harder for them. Um, and the pension is life-saving for many disabled people because it gives them financial de- independence. It gives them agency in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and once your partner tested and you have your, the support cut away, you're thrown onto interdependence on your partner and you um, rely on their generosity. (laughs) And if you're in a tough living situation, often that means that you're in this agonizing situation where you have to see what the limits of that generosity is, which is not something most couples want to explore. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's such a, like, perverse... um, expectation of of government that um that people that are living below the poverty line um people that are experiencing extreme financial hardship should then um put a significant amount of pressure on their interpersonal relationships um on their romantic relationships to um make up the shortfall of adequate government funding. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So it's pretty well documented how expensive it is for people to be in poverty in terms of things like not being able to buy in bulk or pay costs annually. So I was wondering if you wanted to speak to this phenomenon as well um, 
you know, based off what you've been talking about so far? Well, I mean, as you mentioned, um, poverty is expensive. <laughs> um, it's memorably put by this uh, writer, Terry Pratchett, who comes up with this theory called boot theory. That in the story he tells in one of his books, um, a poor person is forced to buy lower quality boots, which wear out, and then they have to pr- replace them and then replace them again and so forth, whereas a wealthier person would just buy more expensive boots and they would last them longer, and overall the wealthier person would pay less on boots. Uh, I, that story illustrates what the problem with poverty is. Um, so in uh, reducing your short-term expenses, often that incurs um, costs later on mm. because you don't have options available to you, such as buying in bulk. If you... Uh, I mean, if you don't go to the dentist, for instance, and the dentist is horribly expensive, that you could end up in horrible pain and that would impact your life and perhaps you could work. That means you can't work as much or um, create, creates a lot of stress. Um, also, another thing that I don't think that gets enough um, attention um, in discussions about sort of the cost of poverty is people, uh, this is, uh, there's a very good TED talk by uh, the author of Utopia for Illis. I can't remember his name. I think he's a Dutch historian. Mm-hmm. Um, he mentions how, and this is something that anyone in poverty can attest to, um, poverty for well, most people living it is a state of chronic stress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so in this it's not something you just get to switch off, and um, it's not, not convenient for me. I need to um, calm down and make make rational decisions and plan plan my life. Yeah. Um, so, saving money and um, managing your expenses requires careful planning, and people. Uh, in poverty or often living on the edge and so I, if if someone has a particularly bad day at work maybe they'll just come home um, and they go to the pub have a have a drink afterwards or they have these sort of coping mechanisms if you're in poverty it's, um, it's I mean it's it's really hard just to have have those sort of little pleasures of <laughs> just switching off because mm. they cost money. Um, so either you sort of deprive yourself um, um, and just sort of try to stick it out sort of day, day in and day out. Or, I don't know, you give yourself a little something to take the edge off. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's really not conducive to the sort of um, careful methodical planning that, that's needed to, um, well, to manage your your life or your expenses mm. in the best way. Yeah. And, 
I mean, like, you know, people that are living on, you know, people that don't have enough to survive are experts in budgeting and sorting out their own finances. And then as you see, like, this impossible, um, you know, by living below the poverty line, it just makes absorbing any shocks, you know, impossible. Uh, So... Just just in view of uh, wrapping up, uh, when it comes to addressing poverty in Australia, what are some of the main changes that you would like to see government make? And um, where can people find your writing? Uh, right. So uh, ra- raising, the, raising the rate should be a no-brainer. Um, I mean, even... I mean, people on disability and age pensions are struggling and people on JobSeeker are struggling even more. Um, that the the low rate is just creating poverty. <laughs> um, the I mean, as as anyone listening to this would be aware, um, rents are out of control. So <laughs> mm-hmm. we need some kind of relief to rent uh, for renters. Um, the partner test. Uh, is is a horrible thing that we should have got, got rid of a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and many people like myself, and I haven't really gone into much detail about it, are, well, disabled and limited in how much they can work. Mm-hmm. But the it's near impossible for many disabled people to get onto the disability pension because of the daunting and extremely difficult, <laughs> extremely difficult process of applying, and many mm. people who are debilitated by their illnesses just don't qualify for one reason or another. Um, so, improving access to the disability pension would be also very welcome. Totally. Um, I haven't been writing as much recently. Um, I. Did it really just to get all of the, my frustrations off my chest, and I was just sort of sharing it online. Um, I wrote. Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. No, I was I was gonna say because um, we're gonna have links to this in our show notes because I can see time ticking down to the end of the show. Um, but we'll have a link to Poverty One Hundred and One, a beginner's course, and we're also gonna have a link to the Power to Persuade blog. Um, but also, if you have anything else that you want to share with us in terms of writing that you've done, send it over, and um, we'd be more than happy to chuck it in our show notes. Sure. So, as you mentioned in the introduction, um, I've well just authored a piece for the Powers of the Slate Sweet mm-hmm. blog about the partner test. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, I, uh, oh, we'll yeah. direct people there. But Robert, so so sorry yeah. that we've got to wrap up. But thank you oh, so much course. again thank for you. your time. Yeah, um, yeah. So pay attention to anti the anti poverty center and please fight for us, uh, uh, po- folks in poverty. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, definitely, we'll keep encouraging people to do so and direct people to the blog. You take care and have a great day. Thank you, Robert. Thank you very much. 
And that was anti-poverty advocate Robert, who joined us to discuss his personal experiences and analysis of social security ineligibility um, and poverty in Australia as part of a discussion focused on Anti-Poverty Week, which is running from the 15th to the 27th of October. That's all we've got time for today, and we will catch you next week on Thursday Morning Breakfast. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.